Thanks, Sal. Good morning, folks. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, let me add my welcome to uh, Luke's. Uh, and please have your Bibles open and please keep them open in James, that, uh, that chapter 4, the end of 4 and beginning of 5. If you don't have a Bible on you, there's a couple at the back. If you don't have one in your possession and it might be take a while to buy one, take that one. Put your name in the front of it right now. It's yours. Um, that's one thing we want to make sure that people have good access to is God's Word. Um, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning, but let's pray as we begin. Would you pray with me? Oh, Youth Church, I always forget. FEA. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do ask that uh, both in here and in the Kids Church program, the Youth Church program, that you would be working by your Spirit as we attempt uh, to understand and apply your Word. Uh, Please help us to do so for our own good and for your glory. Amen. Uh, As Luke mentioned before, what what do you like as a planner? What, What do you like as a planner? What's the year ahead look like for you? Are you the kind of person who is working from a 10 year mapped out risk assessed plan? Or is anything beyond the end of your nose too far in the future for you to consider? What are you like as a planner? Or what about your finances? Are you, uh, are you careful with your cash? Are you savvy with your simoleons? Are you the kind of penny pincher who squirrels, squirrels away every cent? Or are you more of an you know, easy come, easy go kind of spender? Or what about your attitude during hard times? When unexpected trouble comes your way, Are you the cool, calm, collected, content and convinced of God's sovereignty and his goodness at all times, regardless of what's happening about you? Or when you hit the the metaphorical bump in the road of life, do you find yourself careening all over the figurative highway as though you are ultimately in control of all things and therefore it's up to you to regain and maintain the course of your life? What do you like when trouble's hit? And these are, there's some big, big questions to ponder, aren't they? There's some big things to consider. Maybe you've considered some, uh, some of these things before. And in fact, there's some of the big questions that are addressed in our passage from James today. And if you have just joined us, as Luke said, we've been noticing throughout this series of how much of the, the content of James's letters comes, letter comes down to this idea of double-mindedness. It's that danger that we've seen week in and week out in every chapter, specifically named in last week's section, It's that idea of wanting to be friends with God and friends with the world at the same time. Double-minded is what James calls it. And what's more, he says that's an impossible position to attempt. If you remember from last week where he spoke about it specifically, directly, James 4 verse 4, don't you know, says James, that friendship with the world means enmity with God? And later in verse 8, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's really aiming up on that attitude. In other words, you cannot be friends with the world and a follower of God at the same time because the two are diametrically opposed to one another. To, To try to do both, it's like saying you're a carnivorous vegan. It's a contradiction of terms. You can't be a vegan and a carnivore in the same way at the same time. And just as we saw last week, you can't operate with earthly wisdom, taking on the ideas and the ideals of the world as of primary importance, at the same time as operating with heavenly wisdom that submits to God as, as if it is of primary importance. You can't do it. One stands opposed to the other. So make your choice and make it carefully, make it prayerfully. That was James's advice last week. Stop being double-minded. And instead, ask humbly for God's generous gift of his heavenly wisdom because you need it and only God can give it. That's where we finished last week, yeah? 
And this week, as Luke said again, as we go into four, uh, chapter 4, the end of first, uh, chapter 4, end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we're going to go again and look at this wisdom applied to the areas of future planning, finances and suffering. And we're going to see again this idea of the difference between double-minded earthly wisdom and single-minded heavenly wisdom. So let's, let's do the first one first. What do you like of planning for the future? Do you have the course mapped out for the rest of your day, the rest of your week, the rest of the month, the rest of the year? Have you already got a retirement plan in action? So much so that you can already almost smell the salt air, taste the pina coladas by the poolside in the tropical oasis. Is that you? Larry Strunk had this sort of a plan. Strunk, I just like the last name. That's why I added this chap, let's be honest. Larry Strunk did. He knew what he was doing, 2008. He was then 66 years old and he decided he was going to finish up day trading his $401,000 stock portfolio in oils. He was going to stop day trading that. Instead, he thought, let me invest this all into Washington Mutual Bank, Mawu Bank, a conservative savings and loan bank in the US that Larry fully expected would keep him solvent and comfortable as he spent his twilight years traveling to exotic Asian countries. What happened next? Three letters signifying three very significant words, GFC, Global Financial Crisis. And beyond most people's reasonable expectations, including Larry's, and for reasons well beyond my understanding, 2008 saw WAMU, oh, WAMU? Yeah. Washington Mutual Bank become, the, at that time, the largest failed bank in US history. And Larry Strunk saw his fortune shrunk Thanks, Luke. Well, that was yours before the service. Thanks very much. Um, he saw his $401,000 retirement nest egg shrink to the size of a packet of peanuts in a heartbeat. And his case was not isolated, folks. His case was not isolated. Many people lost their fortunes in the GFC. Perhaps you were affected. Perhaps your significant uh, others were affected. Regardless of whether you were affected directly or not, there is an important life lesson to be learned here about future planning. And it's very simple. It's that you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And from an earthly wisdom perspective, there is no such thing as a sure thing. Now, we, we need to know this, not just in principle, but applied in practice. Look at how James starts this section of chapter 4, verse 13. If you've got your Bibles there, crack them open. Let's read it together. James 4.13 says this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year, carry on business and make money. You know, it's almost as if James is directly addressing the Larry Strunks of the world. Perhaps you find yourself addressed there also. But look as he continues, verse 14, why you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, I don't, I don't think I've got to sort of break that down too far for you to get, you know, pick up the, the, the drift of what he's getting on there. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're a mist that vanishes. But I do want you to notice, notice what James is not saying here. Be careful to note he's not against future planning. Mark, mark that down somewhere. He's not advocating for a, a lackadaisical, laissez-faire, do whatever, you know, whatever will be, will be fatalistic type of future. That's not what he's advocating, not at all. Rather, he's warning against an attitude that pretends to know what will happen in the future or pretends to know what ought happen in the future or pretends to be in control of what is happening in the future without reference to God. 
who actually is in control. That's proud, arrogant and sinful, James will say in a minute. But before we get there, let's just hold up for a minute. I mean, who really makes plans like this? I mean, does anyone really pretend to know the future? Does anyone really make their plans assuming they know how things will turn out? Well, in theory, no way. I mean, we all know that that's just nuts. And when the question is asked like that, we go, no, I don't know the future, that's silly. But in practice, often it's a different story. Do you realise that? What I mean is we, we say we don't know the future and we know we don't know the future, but like Larry Strunk, we make plans as though we do. And when it comes to future planning, we put all our eggs in the one basket, whether it be that of the Washington Mutual Bank or whatever other fail-proof idea we like, and then we're surprised, we're gut-shot, we're confused if or when it all comes crashing down. It doesn't have to be financially related here, by the way. We'll see in a moment this happens in lots of different areas of life. That idea of, though I know I'm not in control of the future, that I don't know what will happen tomorrow, yet somehow I'm disappointed, upset and confused when it doesn't go the way I thought it ought. Now there's a term I, I use to describe this phenomenon. It's called functional atheism. Mark that one down. What does functional atheism mean? Because I think it's something we need to know because it's something we're all very susceptible to. Functional atheism is the, the term I use. It's to, when I recognise that playing out in my life all too often is that in theory I know that God is there and in control and yet so often I find myself acting as though I'm in control. Therefore I function like an atheist and my actions betray me as such. I mean, I've said this before, every, every time I sin, I'm acting as a functional atheist. Every time I do something that I know I shouldn't or I don't do something I know I should, I'm functioning as though I'm the king. And it's a problem. It's the problem of the double-minded person, the person who is trying to mesh earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom at the same time, the person who is trying to straddle the friendship with the world and the friendship with God when those two trains are heading in opposite directions. What it looks like in practice is the person who makes their plans, sets their agenda for the future, and then runs full force to fulfill that plan. But the problem is, and this is where the scary bit is, this is where it really hits home personally, it's remembering, you know the double-minded person has God on their agenda? You realise that? That's who James is addressing here? It's the person who has God on their agenda? He may even be at the top of the list, or nearing the top of the list. He may even be at the top of the list. And it may be evidence through regular church attendance, you know, I morning devotion, occasionally I pray. The double-minded person wants to be friends with God. But this is the stinging bit, this is the problem. The double-minded person is still pursuing their agenda. Do you see the difference here? Do you see the problem with that? What I mean is, God is not interested in being on your agenda. He's not satisfied in being the silent partner in your life's plans who you effectively only treat like a vending machine or a piñata. You know, push a few coins in, press a few buttons, hit him with that stick called prayer and expect him to spill out all sorts of goodies when I need it. And if it's not the piñata vending machine type of God, then he's the fire extinguisher God that I, that I go to when I need rescue God. When my plans come crashing and burning down, I, God, where are you? And I use him like a get-out-of-jail-free card of Monopoly. That's the double-minded person, and we've all been there if we're honest. Let me ask you a little diagnostic question just to reinforce the point, if you're still, uh, still thinking it's not you. How much of your prayer life is reactive? 
Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, I need you. Oh, God, this has happened again. How much of your prayer life is reactive? There's, a, there's an alternative here is what I want to say. There's an alter, it's the proactive prayer. It's the single-minded believer that James is calling us to be who don't put God on the top of our agenda but seek his agenda for our lives. And it's a marked difference. Read it there with me how James describes the alternative. Chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Instead, you ought say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Do you hear the difference? James is not saying don't make plans. Don't neglect to make plans, but do so prayerfully according to the wisdom God has given you, which ought acknowledge up front that God may direct or redirect these plans at any time because you know and trust his wisdom as a loving heavenly father. And therefore, his agenda is always better. And that also means that there ought be no space left for doubt or distrust, whatever the path he guides you down, even and especially when it's unexpected. That's single-minded trust of God. And I want to say again, it's not natural, it's supernatural. That's not something I can engineer, that's something that I need, that's something you ought want. But again, let me, let me take this a step further. Let me see what this looks like in practice a little bit more. I often get in trouble from Tiana for not joining the dots clearly enough. So from principle to practice, you know, I'm a principle guy, you know, work it out. No, apparently not. So let me sharpen up a few for you, Tiana. This is for you. <clears throat> you found a job advertised, right? It's a good job in your field. According to the wisdom that God has given you, it looks like a terrific opportunity in every aspect. Good pay and conditions, the hours are manageable, there's nothing obvious that means it would be a sinful distraction or that it might stunt your Christian maturity in any way. So what do you do? What does Christian wisdom applied look like here in terms of future planning? Well, well, it looks like you apply for the job, you do your very best in the application of the interview process and prayerfully entrust the outcome to God's sovereignty. All right, that's what you do. Now, this is where people are tempted to stop and think that's it. That I've now applied this godly wisdom of future planning. No, no, no there's, there's, the next step is more important. In fact, I want to say there's a next step that's even more important that actually separates the genuinely single-minded follower of God from the fickle, double-minded fraudster. But you only see it when you don't get the job. Now, just think about this for a minute. Do you hear? When God's answer is no... This is when the rubber hits the road. This is when the integrity of Christian faith and the quality of the wisdom you're operating with is, is, re is really revealed. Because when you don't get the job, though you are better qualified and have more experience, the single-minded person sees past the disappointment, which is there, by the way, past the disappointment to continue in contentment that God is sovereign, in control, he has a divine purpose, and he's expressing his fatherly care even when it's revealed that the process was unfair, it was a loaded dice from the beginning, it was the boss's friend's daughter who got the job over you. It's the single-minded follower who doesn't lose their mind and wallow in the pity as though God's plans have suddenly been thwarted by a personal relationship between a boss and his friend's daughter. That may have been the mechanism by which you missed out on the job opportunity, but the architect of your life is still God, isn't he? God willing, we will live and do this or do that, says James, which by definition means if God is not willing, we won't. Now, that sounds like a really obvious point, 
But I make it explicitly because sadly I have sat over the years with people whose trust in God or their willingness to continue in faithful obedience to Jesus has been turned upside down because their plans didn't turn out the way they expected. God didn't meet their expectation for their future plans. They missed out on the house they were trying to buy. Or the relationship they were hoping to blossom didn't flower. Or the sick loved one they assumed would get well suddenly and unexpectedly died. And don't hear me be flippant or callous about this. Or suggest that these examples aren't deeply emotional, painful and even confusing for people who live through them. And I use those examples explicit because they are real examples of real conversations where I've sat with people and tried to help them process the hurt, the horror and just the sheer bamboozlement they've experienced because the situation they found themselves suddenly thrust into just didn't compute. Many of you will know this somewhat personally, I assume, as well, and it's difficult to say the least, isn't it? As you pour over the events of your life, looking for and finding no obvious reason for God, why God would ordain events this way. Why would he do that? The house was so perfect, the job so suited, the relationship so fulfilling, the sick one so loved and cherished, And and your intentions in each of these were God-honoring and good. So why would God do that? Why would God allow that? Why would God ordain that? And friends, I want to say it's not wrong to acknowledge the the disappointment, rather the confusion even. It's not wrong to ask those questions. But make sure you land the answer in a full and humble acknowledgement that God is God and you're not. That God is infinite, that you are finite. That God is sovereign and you are limited. That God is good. That his plans and purposes are likewise good. And that he will unapologetically use any and all means necessary to grow his kingdom and grow his people in Christ's likeness, sometimes through painful trials that defy our future plans. Because he has something better, more profound and more God-glorifying in mind than you expected from your limited perspective. Do you get that? It's a painful, difficult, necessary truth to hold on to. In fact, listen to how C.S. Lewis put it. In a, in a, uh, I think it was called The Weight of Glory. I read this years ago and someone reminded me of it recently. So often we go, oh, I just can't do that. I'm too passionate. I'm too... No, no, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted, I would say double-minded. We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I love C.S. Lewis. You've got to read his quotes a couple of times to get in the groove. I always find every time I read a C.S. Lewis book, I read the first chapter about three times and then I'm in the groove. But when he puts it like that, it's madness when you put it like that. It's madness. And isn't it the notion of preferring my own counsel, my own wisdom in future plans at the expense of God's wisdom and his perfect will for my life? That is madness put in those terms. It's like preferring mud pies in a ditch to a holiday at the beach. It's madness and yet many of us function this way. To make plans, future plans, without reference to God's overall sovereign control or to place expectations on him that centre around your wisdom, your preferences, your design, that's not just madness. What does James say of it? Well, once again, James the bare-knuckled boxer goes straight for the jugular. Have a look at verse 16. 
because he calls it out for the arrogance that he is. Verse 16, he says, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. In other words, to know that it is right and it is good to submit your will to God's, but then plan or function as though you're in control or that God must submit to your will, that's evil, he says. That's sinful, that's double-minded stupidity, and we need to repent of it quickly and often. So once again, friends, mark it down. Consider this today. What are your plans for the future? What are your hopes and dreams in your work, in your relationship, in your living conditions, in your health? It's not wrong to have a plan to be working towards a goal in any or all of those areas. But if your goal is less than to be in the center of God's will for your life in every one of those areas, regardless of what that may look like, and you're not consciously acknowledging that God's sovereign control and fatherly wisdom to direct or redirect those goals as he sits fit, then it's time to reassess. It's time to reassess. Father, not your will, Sorry, Father, not my will. That's a big difference, Casper. Not my will, but your will be done. That is a weighty, serious, single-minded prayer, isn't it? And think about it. Who prayed like that? And when did he pray like that? That's Jesus, folks. (laughs) That's Jesus praying in the moments before his arrest, which he knew would lead to his brutal execution. He prays in Mark 14, 36. It'll come on the screen so you don't have to flick there. He prays, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. This cup being the figurative cup of God's wrath that Jesus is about to drink on behalf of sinners like us. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What a prayer. What a perspective. What a trusting submission the Son has for his Father, who is now our Father. Oh, folks, that God might give us and grant us that same loving dependence, that same willing submission, that same unflappable, faithful trust in his sovereign plans for our life. It's not natural, it's supernatural. But we need to move on. How does this same principle apply uh, of, of heavenly wisdom, how is it applied and played out in terms of money and wealth? Notice again something that's plain. It's, it's, James is not saying that wealth in and of itself is the problem. But rather what you do with, or very more importantly, what you don't do with your wealth, with the physical means God has entrusted to you, this is of significant, uh, significant concern for James because it's of significant concern for God because then it ought to be significant concern for us. Read this little chapter with this little bit of chapter one, uh, sorry, chapter five, verse one with me, and pay particular attention. Spot the warnings that James is making for people of means, which, let's be honest, again, in our very comfortable existence in Australia, we all fit. Chapter five, verse one. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, There's far more in those verses than we've got time to, to go into or unpack this morning. But just notice, straight off the bat, it's the attitude towards wealth that James is aiming up on here. In particular, it's the attitude of prioritizing that temporal wealth over eternity 
or, or prioritizing earthly riches over heavenly riches. That's the big issue that he's aiming at. And this is evidenced through the way that we use our money. There are several key, there are several key behaviors that James uh, lists here, indicative again of that double-minded person and that we need to be careful of not succumbing to our own lies. I've listed a few of them in the outlines there, but I'm not going to have time to name and uh, illustrate them all, but let me do a couple. Because, and I think it's important we do that, because I think we read a passage like this and we just assume, yeah, I hope all those CEOs of multinational corporations are reading James 5, you know. No, it's not for just the CEOs of multinational billionaire corporations. This is just as applicable for you and I. Look at it there, chapter 5, verse 4 we see the issue of being fraudulent with money. And it's the love of money that causes or sees people refuse to part with it, even when they have legitimate or owings to other people. The example in the text is is of the boss who refuses to pay his workers their wages and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. That is a serious charge, do you notice? In fact, I was talking to my my dad the other day, and we were talking about a friend of ours. Now, f- over 50 years ago, he came out from Scotland. He, I think he ran a foul of law in Scotland and he got a, an option to you know, flee Dodge, come to Australia, worked on a sheep farm somewhere in New South Wales and was given his board and lodgings, you know, his, uh, his meals and that sort of stuff. But the farmer repeatedly said to him, oh, Jock, I just haven't got around to paying you yet. Just waiting for the wool check, mate. Just waiting for the wool check. You know, sling him a couple of bob to be able to go into town and do a little bit here and there. But just waiting for the wool check, mate. Just waiting for the wool check. And month on, month off, this same thing happened. Jock patiently waited, the, you know, the, the debt racking up, until one day the farmer had gone into town to get on it, apparently. And the farmer's wife came out and said, seen Jock and said, Jock, have you been paid yet? No, no, just waiting for the wool check. And, he said, and the farmer's wife said, um, he says that all the time. There is no wool check. The wool check, last year's wool check's come and gone. Next, week, next year's will go the same way. Cut your losses and run. She actually gave him enough money to get on a, uh, a train to Melbourne and had printed out some applications for him to join the RAF. She said, I'm so sorry, he's done it before, he'll do it again. Cut your losses and run. This is the sort of stuff that, that James is talking about here, isn't it? It's not, a, it's not a, a lack of ability to pay his worker, it's a lack of willingness to pay his worker. But just in case you think that it doesn't apply to you because you mow your own lawns, or because you harvest your own crops, or perhaps because you don't even have a crop, this doesn't apply to me, think again. You see, it's, it's possible to have that same attitude, that same love of money that I'm so unwilling to part with it. It's the same attitude that is lurking in the hearts and minds of all of us. For example, when you encourage your 11-year-old nephew to pretend that he's 10 to save a few bucks on a movie ticket, is it not the same attitude at heart? Or when you add a few extra false items of damage to a legitimate insurance claim to reap a small financial advantage for your home renovation... I, I use that one because that was our situation recently. Here we've got this, you know, flooding in our house. Oh, man. It's so tempting at that point. Oh, yeah, hang on about that. Hang on, I'll kick that into the puddle of water. Oh, it's... <laughs> it's the same attitude though, isn't it, that's driving that? Don't, don't pretend it's not there and don't pretend it's not real and raw and looks good. Don't kid yourself that it's not the same fraudulent behaviour driven by the same love of money as the boss who's unwilling to pay his workers. But notice, it does not go unnoticed by God. Don't be double-minded. Don't do it. 
One more example from the text because of the time. It's the same with the selfish, indulgent and complacent attitude James describes in verse 5 of chapter 5. He says, You lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. There is a selfish, indulgent, complacent attitude that James is aiming up on here. In fact, here James is sort of likening the double-minded person who's focused on the dollars. He's, he's likening them to a dumb animal, too preoccupied with shouldering others out of the way of the feed trough, completely ignorant of the fact that the slaughterman is sharpening his knife. And again, we don't have to look far to see this so prevalent in our Western culture, do we? People who are so self-absorbed and greedy for more money, greedy for more pleasure, that they're completely ignorant of the fact, the reality of a judgment day. When we will all stand before the Lord of the universe, and you know what? He won't be impressed by your handbag collection. All your six-pack abs. All your Instagram feed of all the fancy restaurants you've eaten at. Christian brothers and sisters, this is selfish attitude is not just seen in how we spend our money, but also in how we don't spend our money. It's getting the pay rise without ever considering how I could use those extra dollars to help others or to further God's kingdom work locally or abroad. It's being very diligent with my budgeting, factoring in all of my creature comforts first and only considering generosity out of what's left. Friends, I could go on, but it all points to the valuing of the temporal over the eternal. Do you see it? Of prioritizing the fleeting earthly pleasures over the forever forever heavenly joys. And James is saying that this attitude will testify against you. Because those who put their hope or their heart's desire on gold on earth will find these treasures worthless and corroded in heaven. Verse 2. Now, don't miss the power of that image or that illustration. Don't miss the idea of your gold has corroded. James uses that precisely because, according to my understanding, gold doesn't corrode in any earthly sense. That's the sort of, that's why it's a precious metal and it, uh, it doesn't corrode. It's, it's long-lasting. But from an earth, sorry, an eternal heavenly perspective, gold is a joke, James is saying. It corrodes to nothing. Don't be lulled by it. Now, look, there are plenty of other examples of the text that we could look at. The love of money causing people to act unjustly there, verse 6, or the different types of complacency or greed. When we're not going to go into it, I need you to join the dots on that one, Tiana. Is that all right? Yeah, thanks. And as for verses 5 to 12, look, about patience in suffering, the same principles apply, but I'm going to need to fold that in the next week. But before, sorry, as we finish up, I just want to really quickly recap what should we do with all of this? What should we do now? Okay, we've heard that. You know, we've been bashed up a little bit by James again. What do we do with it? And simply put, if you remember nothing else this morning, then remember this. Please remember this. When it comes to future planning and finances and patience and sufferings, don't be a functional atheist. Make your plans. Pray God's will. And trust his care as these plans unfold, even if they unravel. Because God is good, he knows what he's doing even when you don't. Plan, pray, trust, repeat. Let's pray now, folks.